Well, good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, I hope you do, I invite you to open them with me to the Gospel of Matthew and, and put your thumb in chapter 5 or enter it into the search bar. <laughs> it's, a, it's a new world when it comes to how we get to access Scripture, isn't it? And for those who are uh, with us for the first time today, let me say especially welcome. You're catching us really at the beginning of a journey that's going to take us several months. You'll see the outline of a sermon series. Uh, we titled it The Greatest Sermon Ever, and that's presumptuous except that I'm not talking about mine. I'm talking about the one that Jesus gave, uh, the one that's known historically and traditionally as the Sermon on the Mount. And when we launched the series a couple of weeks ago, we did just a general orientation to the whole thing. But this week is really the launching off point. We're starting in today. So you've picked a great day to be here as we begin the journey. The Sermon on the Mount begins in chapter 5 of Matthew's Gospel, but we're going to back it up just a little bit to set the stage. Uh, where was the sermon given? To whom was it given? What was the context for it? So we're going to start in Matthew chapter 4, around verse 23. And what I'd like to do, I'm going to read the passage, and I want you to see if you can pick out what part of the passage, as I read it, is not actually in the Bible. Okay, this is a test for you deep-thinking Bible scholars. Here we are. Jesus went through Galilee teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And the smart people came to him. And the attractive people. And the rich people. And the people with a thick head of hair, Winslow. And, and he said to them, Blessed are you, you smart, pretty, rich, well-coughed people, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Okay? Now, I, I know this isn't going to land in everybody's lap, but for the really deep thinkers here, did you pick up on the one or two places where there, there might have been a bit of a change in the text? <laughs> Let's read it as it's actually there. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And news about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. And large crowds from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and the region across from the Jordan followed him. And now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. And his disciples came to him, and he began to teach. Let's pause there for just a minute. When he saw the crowds, can you imagine the crowds? Can you picture them? Who, who's there in the crowds? There's a number of descriptions for them, but you get a sense of the flavor for the crowd. These are needy people. These are hurting people. These are people who don't smell good. They don't behave well. Demon-possessed. Not normally noted for their good behavior, this crowd. Charismatics know that, I suppose, but, but we're Baptists. You might not know that. It's just the truth about them. In these crowds, people are having grand mal seizures while Jesus is speaking. Lepers are there. People whom nobody would touch. 
People who drink too much, people who who can't hold on to a job, people who can't fix their lives, people who have no money for medicine, people who are there on the edge, people who have no hope. How will Jesus give the good news to this motley assortment of people, to this crowd? You know, the most famous talk in the history of the world probably has the most famous beginning for a talk even though it's widely misunderstood. Jesus begins his sermon, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's start there. Let's linger there for just a little bit. Let's linger on that word blessed, for it's the first word of this great message from Jesus. It's a cliche word in in our day, isn't it? We use it when somebody sneezes. We We use it, well, they use it down south, actually to say the exact opposite of what it means. Down south, when they say, oh, God bless her little heart, what they really mean is, I hate her. (laughs) That's just just what they mean. But in the Bible, the word blessed addresses a question that haunts the human race. What is the good life? Who has it? What does it mean to be well off in the world? And any serious thinker about life is going to have to wrestle with that question. You know, the biggest movement in psychology over the past 20 years has been what's, what's been loosely phrased as positive psychology, research about happiness and well-being and, and human flourishing. And it deals precisely with that question. Who has the good life? And everybody sort of has an idea about this. You know, there, there was an ad for a car not too long ago that ran, chase happiness in a car that can catch it. <laughs> I was traveling by plane a number of years ago. The in-flight magazine was called The Good Life. And as I leafed through its contents, I, I guess I came to assume that The Good Life is mostly about fine dining and expensive watches that seemed to be the substance of the magazine. Our society is fascinated with the notion of the good life, with things like early retirement, followed by an exit to some warmer climate, an idyllic-looking environment far away. And there we picture them, a, a gorgeous couple, young, energetic, retired, lying on a sun-drenched beach. Don't picture it too much. But how are you doing, we ask, and... And they say, live in the dream. Isn't that it? Live in the dream. Who's living the dream? Uh, I mean, you really have to think about that kind of phrasing when you come to the word blessed. Because we've turned it into a cliche. But it's a brilliant way to start a talk. Blessed. Jesus, (laughs) you had me at blessed. Who's living the dream? He says, living the dream, blessed are the poor in spirit. We didn't see that one coming. Uh, What does that mean? Who are the poor in spirit? Uh, I mean, you have to understand that uh, that there's nothing particularly blessed about being poor or, or even about being poor in spirit. It was true in Jesus' day. Let's not imagine it was different. It's, It's certainly true in our day. You might... You might want to phrase it around saying, blessed are the spiritual zeros. Blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt. 
Blessed are the people who know nothing about the Bible, who, who can't make heads or tails of God. Blessed are people who would throw up if you asked them to pray out loud. And blessed are the people who think Joan of Arc was the wife of Noah, or that, that epistles are the wives of apostles, or whatever it is. But people who think that spiritually they have nothing to offer. Blessed. It's often associated with financial poverty as well. The poor in spirit in Jesus' day generally would have also been physically poor. And Jesus said, you're blessed. Live in the dream, baby. And it's not because they're poor. It's not because they're poor in spirit. It's because now, through Jesus, you remember we were stressing this point when we introduced this this series. Through Jesus, the possibility of the presence and the power of God, the favor, the love, the guidance, the strength of God, of God Almighty, has now come right down to them. What's up there is now available down here. Forgiveness and grace and strength and wisdom and healing and joy and acceptance, all available right now. And it no longer matters what the world thinks about you. Those who are poor in the Spirit, this is a quote, those who are poor in the Spirit are called blessed by Jesus, not because they're in some meritorious condition, but because precisely in spite of and in the midst of their ever so deplorable condition, the rule of the heavens has moved redemptively upon them by the grace of Christ. In their ever so deplorable condition. Made me think of that buzzword from the last U.S. election. You remember that one that got such currency, the basket of deplorables? It became quite a sticking point in the campaign. The basket of deplorables. That's the audience for the Sermon on the Mount. That's us. Who will Jesus choose for his people? He chooses from the basket of deplorables. Remember what we said last fall, introducing the vision for the church. Everyone is welcome. No one's perfect. But anything is possible. The basket of deplorables. And what Jesus is really doing in the Sermon on the Mount, in the beginning section that sometimes you've heard called the Beatitudes, another word for blessed, is he's he's contrasting his Beatitudes against what the world says about the good life and who's eligible. Who does the world, apart from God, say is living the dream? Human culture, apart from God, always has its own list of who's blessed, who's living the dream. And so we we might write our own list of beatitudes for the GTA. It'd be kind of fun, actually. You could do it over coffee after the service. Blessed are the talented. Blessed are the CEOs and the VIPs. Blessed are the MBAs and the PhD. Blessed are the slender. (laughs) Blessed are those who went to prestigious schools. Blessed are those who hustle. (laughs) I read about this one last week. It was a blog post from one of the car ride companies. I won't name them, but there's only two praising one of the drivers who went into labor and kept picking up fares on her way to the hospital to give birth. That's life. Is that the good life? 
Blessed are those who pick up fares when they're going to the hospital to deliver. Blessed are the LinkedIn and the Twitter followed and the, the Facebook fascinated. And then you think about all the people who aren't on that list. And the message that they receive is, I'm not eligible for the good life. And Jesus comes to say, no, the world has it wrong. That's why the Sermon on the Mount is so often referred to as a declaration of the upside-down kingdom, of the values of the world flipped on their ear. It it, it looks upside-down. Really, what Jesus is doing is setting things that were already inverted right side up. Everybody has to ask the question of life sometime. Uh, What am I searching for? What will I spend my life in pursuit of? Who's well off? Who's blessed? Who's living the dream? And Jesus has this one resplendent answer to the question. Blessed is anyone who is fully alive in the kingdom of God. Blessed is anyone who's daily interacting with God in God's great venture of bringing what's up there down here. Blessed is anyone who's surrendered the burden of ego. Blessed is anyone who no longer has to carry the weight of the world on their shoulders. Blessed are those who can even for a moment be truly grateful. Blessed is anyone who finds their safety net not in the illusion of avoiding danger because they have so much money or so many connections or so much power, but in the reality that even in the face of danger, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Blessed is anyone who has put God in charge of their lives. To be in the kingdom means to be blessed no matter what. No matter what else may happen. It means your future is secured. It means your present is redeemed. What Jesus is really saying in these beatitudes, these words of blessing, is that even the people regarded as the most deprived, as the most insignificant in the world, can now be blessed by living in the kingdom of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You still have your thumb in your Bibles? Let's read on a little bit. I'm just going to hit some of the highlights, but I hope as you're glancing through that opening section of Matthew, you'll fill in the gaps. Blessed are those who mourn. Who's that? Anyone whose spouse has deserted them? Blessed are those who've lost their jobs? Maybe it was even their own fault. Blessed are you who consider yourself a failure as a parent? Blessed are you who wanted desperately to be a parent but cannot be? Blessed are the chronically depressed? Blessed are the clinically anxious? Why? Because mourning and anxiety are good things? No, because... Because to you, Jesus comes along and says, you too, come be part of what God is doing in the world. Come into my kingdom and I'll be with you and you'll never be alone. You have a future. You may feel like you're at the end of your rope, but you're not at the end of mine. And so it goes in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the meek. Now understand that nobody in the world apart from God has ever put meek people on the fast track to the good life. No company that I'm aware of 
has a sign up on their walls that says the meek employee of the month. Nobody puts meekness on their match.com profile. I guess we should say Christian Mingle, shouldn't we, Angie? The Christian Mingle profile. Hey, want a bargain in the dating world? I'm meek. (laughs) It's a saying, blessed are the charisma challenge. Blessed are the bad self-promoters, for you will inherit the earth as what's up here comes down here. And so it goes through the list. None of the conditions that are listed there in the Beatitudes are thought of in our world as tickets to the good life. And that's probably why Jesus mentions them. Blessed are the persecuted. Looking ahead to verse 10. The idea of the Beatitudes is that there is no condition that excludes blessedness now that Jesus is part of the equation. And now in the community that Jesus has formed in the church, rule number one in the Jesus community is no more pretending. We come to God as we are, and we come to each other to be loved and to be healed. Again, everybody's welcome. Nobody's perfect. Anything's possible. The writer of the little letter to 1 John, if you want to keep your thumb in Matthew, you can look ahead to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 says, If we claim to be without sin, we're deceiving ourselves. The truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He's faithful. He's just. He'll forgive our sins. He'll purify us from unrighteousness. Everybody's welcome. Nobody's perfect. And we've mentioned this before, but I want to tell you one of the reasons why movements like AA, which began as a Christian discipleship movement, one of the reasons they're so powerful is that anytime somebody begins to talk, they begin, Hi, my name's Richard, and I'm an alcoholic. And the other people in the circle don't respond by saying, hey, I'm shocked. You? They say, hi, Richard. A great thinker, a Christian thinker, a student of the movement writes, the wisdom of AA is contained in its celebration of an addict's recognition and their public acknowledgement of their illness. And such a recognition, such an acknowledgement is deemed an achievement and it's celebrated, it's reiterated. Hi, my name is, and I'm an addict. It, it, turns, that, it turns out that genuine, humble, costly, real-time, radical public admission of inadequacy of my inability to change on my own, of my inability to control my own life, to resist those things that pull me down. It's part of, in fact, it might be the biggest single part of what God uses to change people and to make a a healing community possible. Sometimes it gets missed in the church. This last year I spent a fair bit of my time studying the Oxford movement and and the movements that it spawned, uh, 
NA and GA and AA. And as a pastor in churches over 30 years, I, I've been in buildings where we've hosted those meetings. And most of them meet in church basements. One of the sayings that has always haunted me, if you have a chance to listen in on some of those meetings, you're likely to hear this phrase, when you come to the church, you can come downstairs and be changed. Or you can go upstairs, but you'll stay the same. I don't know that that's always true. I hope it's not. But the idea was this, that downstairs there's no pretending. The downstairs people realize that their life is a train wreck without God. The downstairs they've learned that everybody is still blessed even in the catastrophic circumstances of life. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the obsessive compulsives who right now are saying, dear God, get that man a watch. He's going on and on and on. But, but. So here we are in this series, the Sermon on the Mount. In the first week, we spent our time talking about how Jesus understands the good news is the idea that what's up here is now coming to life down here. This week, the good news, I hope it's good news, is that we're going to do our very best to bring what's often been going on down there in church basements up here. Discipleship, for it to be real and life-changing, needs to be just as raw as one of those meetings that's happening in basements all over the city. And I know that frightens some of you. Frightens me. But here's the deal. As we launch into a new year that has as its primary, as its first statement in its new strategic vision, that the power of Jesus is unleashed through authentic discipleship. It's going to have to mean a commitment among God's people to live life without pretending. Not easy, is it? I so often pretend to be nicer than I really am. Can I say that, Rochelle? I pretend to be modest. When at my best, I'm just a recovering praiseaholic like everybody else, looking for my next binge of affirmation. I pretend to be brave. I'm a coward. I can get prickly. I withdraw. I envy. I covet other people's gifts and their successes. I mean, thank God I've never had any issues with sexuality or lust. Well, that's a lie. <laughs> you see, there, there are churches where nobody has sinned for 20 years. And they're dying. What kills the church is not sin. What kills the church is pretending there is no sin. Show me a church that's learned to be open about their secrets and I'll show you a place where lives are really changing. 
And as we launch into not just a new sermon series, but a new season in the life of the church and a new understanding about discipleship, it's going to mean practicing together a new way of celebrating our own inadequacy. And I realize that throughout churches and throughout much of history, this has also involved a confession of sin. But, but so often, even in churches when they do it, it doesn't strike us the same way as a word like alcoholic does. We use the cleaned up little words. Like, uh, uh, I want to confess that I haven't always honored God in my thoughts. My life of the mind is not as pure. That's not the same as saying, I spent three hours on Saturday nights surfing you porn. Couldn't wake up in time for church on Sunday morning. It's a different thing, isn't it? No pretending here. Can, can we be a church that's open about the things for which Jesus came and died? Because we really believe that, that when up there comes down here, that there is blessing. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. One of the things that happens in Jesus' community is it changes not just the way we see ourselves, but the way we get to see other people. Because we're entering into this inverted, upside-down kingdom. And this is also what Jesus is doing in the Beatitudes. He's teaching people how he sees them. So when Paul comes to understand this, this is how he describes it. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 16. He says, from now on, We regard no one with a worldly point of view. We're going to see them the way God sees them. The old translation of that, some of you may have heard it or learned it in King James' translation. It says, we we regard no one according to the flesh. What is that? That's just a system of, of evaluation that we tend to use. What do they own? How do they look? Where do they live? What do they know? Here's an interesting little bit of history of modern technology. Some of you may know this. In the year 2000, a couple of Silicon Valley engineers got into an argument about the attractiveness of a woman that they, they both kind of liked. And so they started a website to rank the attractiveness of people. They called it Hot or Not. It inspired a similar site at Harvard, It was called Face Mash. Eventually it evolved a little bit. You probably know it by its current name, which is Facebook. Right. You've not heard of it? It's this little website where... (laughs) How many of you have it running on your phone right now? Yeah, it's okay. Within a week... That predecessor website, Hot or Not, was getting 2 million hits a day. And here's how it worked. You would post a picture of yourself or someone would post a picture of you. And then people would rate how attractive you are. And then the ratings were rank ordered. And the ranks were posted publicly. So that everybody knew exactly where you were on the ranking. And the idea behind it you know it. Blessed are the hot and, and woe to those who are not. 
And I became one of the basket of deplorables entering into the community of Jesus. One of the things I give up is my captivity to that way of thinking, to the kingdom of the flesh, the kingdom of the self, the kingdom of the world. And I ask God to retrain my eyes so that when I see people, I can see what He sees. I can see children of God. I can see Jesus' cross-embracing love wrapped around them. A friend of mine says if you were to look at ads today, they'll tell you who the unblessed are. The fat, the misshapen, the bald, the wrinkled, the ugly, the awkward, the uneducated. All those conditions are associated in our day with unconditional personal condemnation. People feel it deeply. And even though at some level maybe they, they understand that it's silly to be worried so much about their bodies and we could say to them, how silly you are. But that doesn't bring God's good news into their lives. We need a gospel. Because we live in a silly world. Sin is silly. If the gospel didn't reach us in all of our silliness, who could be saved? This week I'm going to challenge you with a couple of things. I'm going to ask you to practice looking at people differently and ask God to help you as you do this. I was at Home Depot over the holidays. No, that's a lie. I'm at Home Depot all the time. Yeah. But this event happened at Home Depot over the holidays. There was somebody there, a clerk, um, a young woman who was there welcoming people at the door. Um, she had a, a skin condition, quite a severe one, that had permanently disfigured her face, purple blemishes and nodules and so on. And, and at first I felt so awkward that I just... I, turned away. Then I thought, well, what if that were my daughter? How would I want people to relate to her? And so we had a little bit of a conversation. All I can tell you is this. I was, I was just so humbled by her spirit, her, her gregarious warmth. She's a greeter who really was a greeter. By her mind... I asked the question about electrical supply that I thought there was no way in the world she would know the answer to. She knew the answer and more. This week, look past the skin. Look past the resume. Past the clothes. Past the flesh. Ask God to help you see what He sees in people. Jesus goes even further in turning things upside down. He brings the possibility that there is blessing even in the lives of addicts, of the brutal, of the boastful, of the bigots. No wonder it was said of Jesus, this man is a friend of sinners. He even shares a table with them. Here's the last word for today. You may have noticed that Matthew says there were two groups listening to Jesus talk. Have a look back at the beginning of Matthew 5. 
says, now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountainside and he sat down. And his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. In other words, there were crowds and he saw the crowds. And then there were disciples and the disciples were the ones who came. Crowds were there, they were interested in Jesus, they admired his ideas. Maybe they were flirting with the idea of asking him for some help in their lives. But the disciples are the ones who decided they're going to step out of the crowd and commit themselves to following this man, doing what he says. They're just as stained and just as needy and just as poor in spirit as everybody else. They're out of the same basket of deplorables. But what they've said is, I need what this man offers. And so I'm willing to do whatever it takes. I will learn what he teaches. I'll receive what he offers. This is the greatest opportunity that I've ever had. And so they became his apprentices, which after all is what a disciple is. And it continues to happen. Every once in a while, somebody leaves the crowd and they become a disciple. And somebody stops just admiring Jesus and, and starts to follow. And to them, Jesus says, blessed, 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 blessed. Blessed. It could be you. That's the journey we're on together. I hope you'll come back next week. We're going to go on in Jesus' amazing teaching. The, the topic for next week is how to be good and miserable. You won't want to miss that one. Yeah. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, you've given these words, these powerful memorable, world-rocking, life-shaping words. And we turn them into plaques. God, would you allow them to unsettle us enough that they can do the work they were intended to do? Turning worlds upside down bringing hope to those who gave up hope long ago, of taking it away from those who have placed their faith in all the wrong things. God, let it begin with us. Give us eyes to see our lives the way you see them. And then christen our eyes so that we can see others the way Jesus saw them. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.